0: Donald Trump's expected presence at the top of the Republican ticket in November has many Democrats thinking that could help them in the fall. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll look at whether that could assist Arizona Democrats. Some are still wondering what happened in 2014 when the party had an arguably strong and experienced slate of candidates. We'll talk about the current condition of the Arizona Democratic Party with Representative Reginald Boulding and former Attorney General Terry Goddard. Plus, in the midst of all this record-breaking heat, the Valley's also been hit with air quality problems. The Arizona Department of Environmental Quality has extended a high-pollution advisory for ozone through today. We'll find out what's going on. Also, Brian Snyder has been a storm chaser in Arizona in recent years. We'll talk about his new documentary. And when did women begin to dominate the sport of softball, and why does that have Arizona connections? We'll learn from author Erica Wesley. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, the official start of the monsoon season in Arizona is one week away. I'll talk with photographer and storm chaser Brian Snyder about his new documentary, Why I Chase the Arizona Monsoon. Plus, the Major League Baseball season is two months old, and the Arizona Diamondbacks are struggling. I'll ask Chief of Baseball Operations Tony La Russa about that and his history of success with several organizations. We start today's program with the Arizona Democratic Party, a piece in Sunday's Arizona Republic by Linda Valdez attempted to explore why the party has struggled so much statewide, especially considering the recent slate of candidates has been widely respected. So what is the current condition of the party and what changes are needed and possible? With me to talk about that are former Attorney General Terry Goddard and State Representative Reginald Boulding. Welcome to you both. Thank you, sir. And Terry, let me start with you. Um, you were one of those. I think
1: I heard Reginald. And...
0: Uh, yes. Oh, good. He's he is there. Um, Terry, you were one of those respected candidates in 2014, <laughs> uh, who former attorney general, former mayor of Phoenix. So, why didn't Democrats do better in 2014? And do you think 2016 can be a watershed moment, or what?
1: Let's start with the the, the, the watershed. I, I think it absolutely can be, and hopefully we'll talk a little about that. and And I do think it's it's premature to write the obituary for the Arizona Democrats. They they have a lot of, a lot of life and a lot of potential. And frankly, if if uh, you you were investing in a startup and the political cause, I think this would be the kind of, uh, of of opportunity that you might be looking for. And I think Reginald will have a little more to say about what our young talent looks like. Uh, but 2014 was a was a disastrous year for, for Democrats on the ticket, uh, and there, there are two answers to why. The first one was money. We got hugely outspent, largely by dark money that swarmed into this state, uh, basically uh, sweeping the table in terms of every single race where dark money played, dark money won. Uh, and – I think uh, it it sounds uh, pessimistic to say that money controls politics, but from time immemorial, that's exactly what has controlled it. I just finished reading a book about Cicero. And believe it or not, in Roman Republic, uh, money played a huge role, and it still does today. And and, uh, we've got to change that in terms of at least knowing what the source of the money is. The second one is turnout. And and the two are related. Uh, When you see a lot of... uh, unattributed ads who tend to be nasty, attack ads, Um, people throw their hands up, I think, and say everybody must be either a fool or a criminal that's involved in politics because that's what the ads are telling me. And so I'm not going to participate. And Unfortunately, uh, 250,000 Democrats who participated in 2010, the last non-presidential, did not vote in 2014. And I have very little doubt that David Garcia, uh, the excellent candidate for public instruction, uh, Felicia Rodolini, the candidate for attorney general, and even maybe me running for secretary of state, would have been successful had those Democrats come to the polls. But they felt depressed. They didn't feel that there was enough reason, and they didn't do it.
0: Representative Bowling, you're one of the young up-and-coming Democrats in Arizona, and I wonder about you, what does it take to get more younger people excited about the party's ideas, and is it is it money versus message? Uh, is there enough money to get the message out?
2: So, so I think Terry hit on uh, a couple of quick things as he talked about, you know, money and turnout. Uh, one of the things that you will consistently hear from uh, Democrats, not only myself, but uh, those up and coming right now, is the vision and values that we have for the state of Arizona. Uh, one thing that I can tell you fundamentally, when you look at things that, are, that we're fighting for down at the state legislature, when you hear our candidates, like our 2014 statewide candidates, they were saying messages and they, were, they shared the same values as the majority of Arizona. Uh, The problem that we're that we're facing right now, uh, particularly, is when you look at, uh, you know, turnout and making sure that uh, people have a cynicism toward politics from a national level to a local level. So we have to get ourselves in a position to let not only younger voters, but voters know what uh, our elected officials can do for the community and how we can work in partnership to really set the stage for uh, a better Arizona. How
0: much of a role do you think independents have to play in that? Um, If we look at just partisanship, certainly the registration advantage is there for Republicans over Democrats. How do you get independents excited about the Democratic ideas?
2: So one of the the things that we find with independents is that uh, independents, they were a part of either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party at some point. That's one thing that we do know. Uh, And with these independents, uh, many of them are moderate. Uh, and, and when when you look at our independents, what they're seeing is they want to have a, a legislature, they want to have a governor, they want to have an attorney general um, who is fighting for the values of all Arizonians, and they're not just focused dead set on partisanship. Uh, what we have to do is talk about a message that's one of unify, unification and not one that's uh, demonizing each other and each other's party. Terry, what do you think about the partisanship versus independence?
1: Well, I think there's a huge change going on in America today, and certainly in Arizona, uh, we're seeing perhaps the, the, the cutting edge of it. Uh, more independents, uh, and, and I don't want to differ with Reginald. He's, he's, he's absolutely right in, in, in terms of many independents, but a lot of first-time registrants, and specifically first-time Latino registrants, are registering independent. Uh, over 60 percent, according to some statistic I saw recently. And that means that the parties, plural – are not reaching these millennials they're not they're not saying something that they think moves them and uh, that's a pretty profound message and i think if democrats are going to succeed in arizona in the future it's going to be because they capture uh, that group of new voters and and make sure that they are both inspired by the message and that they are confident in the leadership and i think those are two things that so far we haven't produced to the degree that's necessary to change but let's talk on the positive side and and i think reginald was there but i certainly uh, was inspired by the fact that a few saturdays ago out at the phoenix convention center uh literally thousands of democrats came together to choose the last of the delegates to the national convention uh hillary supporters sanders supporters and for a relatively small number of seats, you had an absolutely extraordinary number of new people who were coming out and saying, I want to be part of this. And, and I saw that with a great deal of enthusiasm because I thought uh, that, was, that was a great sign for the future. Of course, being Democrats, they started at – let me think uh, – sometime early in the early morning and they ended just before midnight of the same day. So it became an endurance fest as well as an example of democracy at work.
0: Representative Bowling, let's talk a little bit more about getting those those young people interested. And there's also this idea that young Latinos have to be involved. And is is that is the Arizona Democratic Party reliant on people of color and young people of color? And is that good as we go forward for the future?
2: So one of the great things about the Democratic Party is the diversity of the party, um, and I and I would quite frankly say that uh, the Democratic Party, um, the strength of the Democratic Party, is uh, not only people of color uh, who are who are part of the party, but the values and uh, that they bring, and also the experience. Uh, I can tell you this right now. When you we've seen over the last few cycles, um, our, our Latino community um, dreamers who have really most in many cases many of our dreamers who don't have the right to vote themselves. Out and engaging people in the uh, in, in the public, and and one of the things that we're consistently fighting for and letting uh, people in our communities know is that uh, once you are connecting directly day to day issues to politics, people start to get in, get engaged. When we talk about you know whether it's uh, proposition one, two, three, when people can see direct connections between uh, their stu- their kids, and classrooms and not having enough textbooks. Or we have our huge transportation initiative and we have voters who are taking metro and light rail, when we are able to connect uh, day-to-day operations to politics and let individuals in all communities recognize how uh, our elected officials directly affect what they're doing, that's how we get engagement.
0: And Terry, briefly, you spoke with the Dreamer today. Can you yep. give us a little background on that?
1: Well, it's actually exactly the same point that Representative Bolding just made. Uh, it's... it's uh, I, I asked him this question, why are 60% of the millennial Latinos uh, registering independent? And, and he said, he thought about it for a minute and he said, well, I think you have to connect some advantage to them and their families uh, to their political activity. And frankly, in Arizona, what they've seen over the past several elections is however hard they worked, except – and I would make an exception here – at the at the school board and the city council level, there were groups of DREAMers that made a tremendous difference in several elections. But at the state level and to some extent even at the legislative level, they haven't been quite so engaged because I don't think they see the cause and effect. They, they see a system which has produced Senate Bill 1070, that has produced Seraph Joe Arpaio, that has – consistently year after year done things that have hurt them and their families and they're basically saying that doesn't work for me that there's no there's no they're there there and, and so I think uh, in, the, in the sense that Representative Bolding just said it it has to be this is real this is about the education of yourself and your kids this is about getting to work this is about living a good life in the, in the United States and, and that connection is something I think Democrats have failed to make effectively, and they need to. They're clearly on the right side of the issue. They simply need to make sure that they transmit it, because the money is never going to be on their side. Frankly, corporate America, now that uh, they've been unleashed by Citizens United to to dominate politics, uh, is going to play the money game. The Democrats have to get even better at what they've always done, which is to mobilize people.
0: And Representative Boulding, I wonder about getting younger people involved. How much of that is is getting them behind the scenes grassroots level and how much of it is getting more people who actually want to run for office is that significant
2: there's a direct correlation between uh, the grassroots movement and also getting people running for office when you think about our current elected officials and you ask them what their history was it all be you know it began with them volunteering on someone else's campaign years ago um, and it's a direct connection in, in all communities when you have the ability to see the political process up front in person, when you have an opportunity to knock on the voters' doors and talk to them about uh, the vision of that particular candidate for the community and hear voters and what they care about, uh, that inspires individuals, and that makes them want to be in the positions of change. So there's a direct correlation. The more people that you get actually volunteering, knocking on doors, part of the process, the more they'll actually be able to see the values and how those values that they share in their candidates actually uh, it makes it possible.
1: Well, and young people of talent and, and representative bolding is definitely one of those i think get involved in the process as he's just described and then they see some of the elected leaders and think wow i can do it better yeah. than they can and then they right. proceed to do it and and i think that's that's our hope for the future uh i mentioned at the beginning that uh, it, it, we're a little like the democratic party in arizona today is a little like a silicon valley startup and if you're ambitious and you want to, to go somewhere, you don't start with the established old uh, General Electric. Uh, you go to the startup and you make your uh, your mark right away. And I think that's what's happening in the Democratic Party in Arizona today.
0: Terry, less than a minute ago, I want to stick this on you. Um, looking back to look forward, there are people who were excited when you were attorney general. Janet Napolitano was governor. But the feeling was that there weren't coattails or something like that do you think the party should be in better shape considering we have the top two office holders for six to eight years there
1: maybe uh you know we always have to look at at how you're training the or or bringing on the next generation uh frankly i didn't spend much time thinking about that i had a job to do and and that was (laughs) what i spent most of my waking hours doing um and and the uh but, but but there is a, a dual aspect of leadership, which is you've got to set the policy, but you also have to make sure that there's somebody coming along to carry the torch. And if there's been a failure in the Democratic side, I think that's part of it. Uh, we're sort of starting fresh right now for the 2014 election. We're looking for new leadership. We're looking to find out who the who the next round of, of state leaders are going to be. Uh, that's an exciting time, and it's one that I hope people will pay close attention to.
0: Former Attorney General Terry Goddard, current State Representative Reginald Boulding. Thank you both for the conversation. Thank you. And thank you. St- and still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk about ozone pollution in the Valley, and then later this hour, monsoon storms headed our way in a new documentary. Stay tuned.
2: KJZZ is supported by the Greater Phoenix Chamber of Commerce, growing Arizona's economy from within by retaining and expanding local companies. Membership information at PhoenixChamber.com.
3: Good morning. This is here and now on KJZZ. Stay with us for BBC News Hour today at 1. We've got sunny skies across the state at this hour. It's 79 degrees in Flagstaff, 87 in Prescott, 95 in Casa Grande, 94 in Tucson, and down in Yuma under sunny skies, 92 degrees. Taking a look at Valley traffic, State Route 51 southbound at Northern, there's an accident blocking the right lane. Well, a special thank you to our Leadership Society members, Ross and Shirley Berg, as well as Karsten's Family Funds for their generous support in bringing programs like Here and Now and All Things Considered to KJZZ. To join the Leadership Society and impact our community every day, please visit leadership.kjzz.org. Mostly sunny right now in Phoenix, 21% relative humidity, and it's 98 degrees at 1121.
0: You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Today is the second day in a row that we'll be facing an ozone-related high pollution advisory in Maricopa County. The aim is to decrease pollutants at a time when the area's ozone levels are expected to exceed the federal health standard. To learn more, I'm joined by Al Brown of ASU's Polytechnic Campus. He's the former environmental director for Maricopa County. Al, how different is ozone pollution from particulate pollution, and how should we act in response?
4: Zone is uh, definitely different from uh, particulate air pollution but some of the sources are similar for example combustion of any kind of uh, fossil fuel any kind of fuel Uh, during the winter months we have combustion of wood for heating our houses and outdoor fires also uh, all year round we have diesel emissions especially that contribute to uh, our particulate pollution load But during the summer months, it's mostly the volatile organic compounds, for example, gasoline that we put in our cars, and the uh, tailpipe emissions from burning gasoline and other fuels that combine to make ozone.
0: Now, there's a certain haze, at least it looks like to me, as we're talking this morning. Is that something, can ozone be seen in that fashion? If we see a haze like this, can people say, that's a bad pollution day, or is it not that easy?
4: Itself is uh, nearly colorless and odorless. It it does, however, uh, produce a a visible emission when it's uh, when there's other byproducts uh, associated with it. We call it photochemical smog. Uh, Some of the other chemical constituents in that uh, air pollution mass, air mass, can cause some uh, visible uh, visibility impairment. But there's also several wildfires going on around Arizona right now. One Uh, just outside of uh,
5: young Arizona,
4: and that can also contribute to our haze right now at this time of the year.
0: There have certainly been pushes to improve air quality, specifically in Maricopa County, and many people would say there have been strides made, but what sort of progress do you think has been made, and are there certain paths going ahead where you think we're going in a good direction, or maybe you'd like to see some other things done?
4: The Maricopa County area and the state of Arizona and the entire country have made great progress under the Clean Air Act in 1970. We in Maricopa County the Greater Phoenix metro area used to be out of attainment for carbon monoxide particulates and ozone. We are still out of attainment for particulate matter, uh, the coarse particulate matter, we call it PM10 and ozone. But we no longer have an air pollution problem with carbon monoxide, so we've completely controlled that. And we also had a clean year for particulates, uh, the PM10 coarse variety. Uh, During 2015, we had no violations, no exceedances to any of our air monitoring stations. That's uh, a real huge step in the right direction. We've had uh, at least a couple of good years now for particulates. And ozone has been coming down very slightly. The main reason why we are having more air pollution advisories now in uh, 2016 is because there is a new EPA standard for ozone that is more stringent than the previous one. Uh, So the EPA is required by the Clean Air Act to periodically review the air quality standards, and they are mandated by the Clean Air Act to base their decision on the number to set, the regulatory threshold, at a level that is protective of human health.
0: Al Brown of ASU's Polytechnic campus, he's also the former environmental director for Maricopa County. we have be talking a bit about today's high pollution advisory related to ozone for Maricopa County. This is KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. So much of a community is built almost literally on people working together for a collective vision that involves focusing on what's for the greater good rather than works for any particular individual. ASU President Michael Crow heard NBC's Tom Brokaw speak at the Aspen Institute, and Brokaw called for a way to develop the next generation of leaders. To that end, ASU's Public Service Academy was started. By the end of its first year, the academy had 117 students, and 150 freshmen will be added every year. With me for a few minutes to talk about the Public Service Academy is Lieutenant General Benjamin Frankly, who serves as a special advisor to Michael Crow on leadership initiatives. And General, welcome. Thanks for being here.
6: Thank you very much. Nice to be with you.
0: Why do you think we need a civilian leadership program today, and how important is it that those civilians also have some sort of idea about what the military does?
6: Well, it uh, goes back to the founding of the republic. Uh, The earliest uh, founding fathers called for uh, our citizens to be trained to be uh, well-educated members of the government, to to create this new government of freedom and democracy. First uh, manifestation of that was the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1802. And so we know how to educate military officers. We've been doing this since the founding of the public. But we haven't thought about in, in, in depth about educating our men and women to serve in the public sector. And uh, I think today more than ever with our divisiveness, with uh, the, the polarization that we have, with some of the moral exemplars not showing all that they could uh, with well-grounded values and ethics, we need to develop and we're focused on developing men and women to contribute to the United States based on our founding principles – who are character-driven leaders.
0: So if we look at how the basis for these things at service academies, um, are there certain things that would work better with civilians, especially when we're talking about young millennials who? certainly when we're all young, we have different ideas about how things work. Um, can those things manifest themselves sort of apples to apples, or do you have to modify things a little bit?
6: I don't think there's a, a lot of uh, modification. Uh, first, uh, the millennials are a wonderful group. I've been to combat with them twice in Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, a lot of people have negative things to say about them, but I'd go with them anywhere in the world. They're, they're wonderful uh, servants on the military side, and we see manifestations of that at Arizona State University with our, our great students. I think that uh, the focus on uh, clear values of respect and integrity, responsibility, um, selflessness uh, are are, are universal values, you could say, and um, personal values. The leadership training, uh, um, training men and women to be uh, good, character-driven leaders, ethically uh, based, add to that a great education that's provided at Arizona State University. You get a pretty great outcome with those men and women with a heart to serve whether that's locally here in the Valley or uh, in the great state of Arizona or in the nation or uh, even uh, overseas, uh, a heart to serve is very important to, to, be, to, give something, uh, bigger than, to be part of something bigger than yourself and to give back.
0: So even as we're serving, can we all be leaders, even if we don't have that title? Because I think there's been that thing about, well, there are leaders, there are followers, whatever. it almost seems like in order to have a more effective community, we should all be leaders our own way.
6: Well, I was in the Army for almost 37 years, and every position I ever held, including three-star general, I was a follower. So good leaders are good followers, and we can all be good leaders, whether that's helping the elderly or the young people or the disadvantaged or whether that's helping uh, with a a program to advance uh, uh, better water power. Uh, For the future, um, we can all lead. We just have to step up and do it.
0: When you think of what serving means, especially when it comes to serving a community, what are some things that come to mind for you, whether it comes down to attitude or hard work or whatnot? Well,
6: it's first putting others first. Uh, it's always putting others first. It's an attitude of improving uh, the community, improving what can be done, whether it's in education, K through 12, whether that's in uh, supporting Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, but focused on the youth, developing that youth. I, I personally believe that there-, there are leaders who are born to it. But most of us have been developed as leaders, and, and any boy or girl, man or woman, can be developed as a leader, and that's what we're about at the Public Service Academy as, de- as leader development.
0: Again, we talked about millennials a little bit, but I think there is, I'm gonna make a blanket statement here, but there's an inherent mistrust of institutions more at the younger age than perhaps at an older age. How do you, when you're talking about a public service academy at a major university, and the military background as well, um, how do we how do we make that mistrust either I don't want to say go away but make it so okay you can ask questions but ultimately these are the right answers to this
6: by example by example authentic leadership uh, moral exemplars uh, men and women that our young people can follow can look up to the essence of leadership is trust whether that's husband and wife with their children or whether that's a a church leader with their parishioners or whomever that is, the essence of leadership is trust. And so it's building that trust between the leader and the lead, the professor and the student. The, uh, In our case, Brett Hunt, who's a great director of the Public Service Academy, building that trust with our Next Generation Service Corps members. They see that trust, they have that trust, and they they want to do well for the team, and they believe in that trust in the institution.
0: So, how did the first year go at Public Service Academy? Kind it went of-
6: exceptionally well. The the men and women that we that came in are un- unbelievable. They're uh, I'm so uh, honored to be with them and see them. Uh, you know, 17% of them were first generation college students. Nine percent of them came from military families. We had um, 18 different states represented, 52 different majors. So, very diverse men and women with very diverse uh, pursuits. Uh, all creating what's called their service mission. What difference do they want to make when they graduate from Arizona State University? And the collaborative work that they're doing and uh, with Reserve Officer Training Corps officers to build relationships between the military and the civilian side is extremely important, and we achieved those uh, goals this year.
0: And how can that expand? When you think about four or more years of college, you have to have the vision grow as you go forward. Can the Public Service Academy lend itself to that?
6: Well, it, it's going to go to scale. We're going to, as you mentioned in opening, we're going to bring in 150 freshmen a year uh, on scholarship to be Next Generation Service Corps members. But, but, you know, Arizona State University is a remarkably innovative university, number one in the nation. So we are prototyping this and, and want to have other universities uh, take this on. We can't go to full scale for what America needs. And so the, our idea, Dr. Crow's idea, is we, we build it here, we learn here, we sort of bruise our knuckles here. We take this best practice and we we share it with other public universities. They, in turn, create public service academies, and the nations and localities are better served because we created this capability and and they built upon it.
0: And that's all the time we have. Lieutenant General Benjamin Frakely serves as a special advisor to Michael Crow on leadership initiatives. We've been talking about ASU's Public Service Academy. General, thanks for being
6: here. You're welcome.
0: It's KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. This has been a disappointing season so far for the Arizona Diamondbacks. In the offseason, the team signed pitcher Zach Grenke to one of the richest contracts in baseball history. Other moves were made with the intention of further strengthening the pitching staff, but those haven't panned out yet. But Chief of Baseball Operations Tony La Russa, has had a history of success in the sport, managing the Oakland A's and St. Louis Cardinals to World Series victories. On Friday, as part of a Phoenix Chamber of Commerce series, LaRusso will be talking about leadership in a presentation called Leading Like a Champ, and he joins me now. Tony, whether it's in sports or another realm of business, how much of working itself is about motivation, and how much of that has to come from inside rather than from a supervisor?
7: Well, a lot of it does uh, tie to your survival. If you work well, you come back to work tomorrow and you make some money, and your compensation is totally day-to-day, but your survival will... Makes a very powerful motivator. But in most cases, you know, there are some uh, issues that can tend to distract you, make you a little comfortable. That's why I think, uh, especially with the distractions and places where you have some protections, really more about personalizing like, leadership so that the uh, people that you're trying to motivate will take their responsibility personal, you know, get their ego and uh, the respect and trust that they want to incur from those around them uh, that they don't take anything for granted and, and they know they're going to have to
0: work at it. You've had success with the White Sox, the Oakland A's, the St. Louis Cardinals, trying to build some success here with the Diamondbacks. You've done that with multiple organizations and you have a reputation for being one of the smarter guys in the game and I presume that is certainly the case, but you've obviously brought other things to the table too. How much have you had to evolve your career when you went from different team to different team or did you have a plan that really seemed to work and and motivated players whichever team you run
7: well the only thing i was smart about was what i was taught and that is that you never know anything or know enough and the uh the pursuit of learning is absolutely critical to your first success your next one and your eventual successes so uh i, I had really good mentors uh, really good teachers that taught me uh, the value of learning the profession uh and then the keys to leadership and uh with all distractions today, your leadership style has to be on a very personal basis. You, it's all relationship-driven, and those relationships you have to forge. They're not automatic. You don't, they don't just come with a position. So I, I think the things that uh, the, the staff and I tried to feature over the years for time-honored time teaching traditions, but as far as the frame-of-mind thing, that was evolving all the time because the interests and the pressures – uh, continued to evolve, and you had to be uh, flexible and adjustable.
0: And how do you think technology has changed things from this standpoint? Obviously, when you were with the A's, you were right, almost right in the heart of Silicon Valley, but social media was not a thing then, and it really is now, and that gets a lot of positives and negatives from people. What's your take on that and how that affects people in the, in the workplace?
7: Probably the most uh, important question that you can ask because it's been the, the most dramatic, uh, and I say intrusion because a lot of times if you're not careful, it can be intrusive to the simple goal. Think about it. You know, you know our job is our team against another team. They play a game. There's a score. I mean, that's that's what we are. Uh, and you can get distracted. Uh, you can get distracted with all the different types of ways to connect publicly. Whether it's Facebook, tweets, you know, texting. You know, whatever, a number of things. Emailing all those stuff. In the end, though, you can get distracted by uh, uh, you know, fame and fortune. The last, and that's why I say it's the most timely. Since about 2000, there's been a tremendous introduction of uh, mathematical analysis formulas that should help you. That they claim will make you better decision makers, as far as you know how you prepare, who you put in uniform, and how you play the game. And there is some real value to some of that information, but in many cases, there it's really overvalued to the detriment of the. the human relationship component. And if you had to pick between one or two, you better, you better relate on a person-to-person basis. The best answer is to strike a balance.
0: It's here and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Tony Larusa, the chief baseball officer for the Arizona Diamondbacks. He'll be speaking on Friday. It's part of the Greater Phoenix Chamber of Commerce event. It is called Leading Like a Champ. Now, Tony, obviously, when you're a successful manager as you were, I presume you had a lot of input, but this is the first time you've actually run an organization. What have been some of the challenges? What are some of the positives of that?
7: Uh, the challenge was I'd always been the guy in uniform. The stuff that gets done upstairs you know, is more organizational-wide, more industry-wide, so you, know, you work on a much larger scope. You're trying to the public, interest them in your product, you're trying to develop Teams in your system, and and ultimately, it's about your big league team playing against the other big league teams. But you know, a lot more complex responsibilities. You know, scouting, player development. One advantage I had was I worked in three organizations, and all three really worked to coordinate the people off field with people on the field. So I had seen it done right, and that's what we try to do with the Diamondbacks. But I think in the end, uh, you know, the yeah, I knew it was. So I just didn't appreciate the intensity of it. When you're upstairs, you care as much about winning as the people downstairs in uniform. And the big difference is that once the game starts, you're absolutely helpless. <laughs> uh, it's all about the guys down there doing it. Where if you were in uniform, you, you know you had some, some input. So I think that's, that's been the greatest awakening. It's just how helpless you are once the game starts.
0: Were you ready to not be a manager anymore?
7: I had enough. I mean, I'm what 30 plus years. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I, this style of personalizing your leadership means that you begin by personalizing to yourself. You know, you don't ever want to fool yourself. And and I knew in the last three or four years it was getting harder and harder. And some things that were uh, easily ignored were getting to be a real hassle for me. And yeah, you know, when you win, last year, I was there the last year when we won. It, it, it was great, but it didn't enjoy quite as much. And it was time to go. So I don't regret, you know, I passed that baton and it was time for it.
0: A lot of baseball fans are in Phoenix, but it's not a baseball town in the same traditional sense. Have you seen that as a challenge? Is that something that that you have witnessed yourself or you think that's in the past?
7: No, that's that's true. I mean, it's a unique situation. St. Louis is unique because, you know, it's a historic franchise. It was the most Western team for years. So they have had a, a long history of of exposure and 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 families feeling an attachment to it and passing it on, generation to generation. Now you come to Phoenix, you know the, the the valley has really grown. It was one of the expansion teams that had that amazing credential to be the first expansion team to win a world championship so quickly. But you know, you know, there's a lot of the people that are living here have moved from other places. Uh, during the summer, you do have some of the folks that will go places cooler. It's a challenge, but it, as they proved in 2001, if you, pre- if you present a championship contender, the fans will. They'll come out. They'll get excited and be as excited and as loud as anybody, and that's our, you know, that's our that's our challenge. But there are some unique roadblocks to our situation.
0: Tony, final question is about this current Diamondbacks team. You made a lot of high-profile acquisitions of some well-known players, successful players in the off-season. A lot of those have not panned out at this point. What explains that, and what makes you think things are going to get better as the season goes by?
7: Well, that's a very fair and a very uh appropriate question because you know, you're now talking about getting into the second month, a uh, third month of the season and we're, you know, we're 10 under 500. So uh that's not the position that we expected to be wanted to be. But uh you know, you learn in baseball it's a 6-month season and a mental and physical toughness are championship qualities and we're being tested. Uh so what we try to do is that you try to control that what's within your control, and that is how hard we play, how well we play. we want to fix it today, but there is an urgency to start generating a couple of significant winning months so that we can have a chance as we get to August, September, to realistically think about October.
0: Tony Larusa is Chief Baseball Officer for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Coming up on Friday, he'll be part of the Greater Phoenix Chamber of Commerce series. He'll be talking about leading like a champ. Tony, thanks very much for the time.
7: Enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: And coming up next on Here and Now, we move from baseball to softball. We'll talk with author Erica Wesley about the history of the game. And then later, Monsoon Documentary. Stay with us.
2: KJZZ is supported by TGen, a nonprofit medical research institute founded in Arizona, bringing precision medicine from the laboratory bench to the patient's
3: bedside. You can support TGen's science at tgen.org. Good morning, this is KJZZ's Here and Now at 91.5 FM and KJZZ.org. Taking a look at valley traffic, some good news on the state route 51 southbound at northern, all lanes there are now clear. We're looking for plenty of sunshine today in the valley, high near 107 degrees, that was our high yesterday as well, a little bit of a cooling trend for the next couple of days down to 104 tomorrow, partly cloudy and 100 degrees on Friday with a slight chance for some showers. Stay with us at noon for Here and Now from Boston. After last night's primary results, we'll hear what's next for election season. And author Davis Miller will talk about his unlikely friendship with Muhammad Ali. NPR's Here and Now is coming up at 12. We've got mostly sunny skies right now in Phoenix, it's 98 degrees at 1143.
0: You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The film A League of Their Own focused on women playing professional baseball as thousands of men were involved in the fighting of World War II.
2: He's starting a girls' baseball league so we can make a buck while the boys are overseas. Want to play? Huh? Nice retort. Tryouts are in Chicago. It's a real league, professional.
3: Professional baseball? Mm
2: Mm-hmm. They'll pay you $75 a week. We only make 30 at the dairy. Well then, this would be more, wouldn't it? You interested?
0: The movie was mostly a comedy with a lot of light moments. The new book Fast Pitch, The Untold Story of Softball and the Women Who Made the Game takes a much deeper look at the impact women have had on softball and why they weren't welcomed in the world of pro baseball. The book's author, Erica Wesley, joins me now from Tucson. Erica, how has the perception of fast-pitch softball changed from its popularity in the World War II era to today?
5: I think the big difference that you see now is that now it's younger players playing softball at the college level and at the high school level as well, whereas back in the 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, it was a more of an adult game, and you had men and women in their 20s and up until their 30s playing it.
0: You have a a New Republic piece that was published uh, online either in the last 24 hours or so, I think, if I'm right about that. One thing that stood out to me is this um, 1980s Miller Lite commercial or something about the perception of what softball looked like at that point. Was there something in particular you wanted people who read the article to learn from that particular reference?
5: Around that time in the early 1980s, slow pitch had really taken over um, in this country, and especially on the men's side. And so... The perception of softball being this kind of beer league sport, where guys would get together, is basically just a home run contest every game, where it's the pitching is you know just lobbed pitching that's really easy to hit. So it's basically you know just guys maybe you know drinking a few beers and bagging balls out of the park for you know however long. And that was kind of the perception of softball because at that time. Women's fast pitch at the college level was kind of just getting started in terms of having the NCAA tournament, which um, started in 1982. There, there was some college softball before that, but it wasn't until 1982 that the NCAA finally embraced women's softball as a sport.
0: You know, I usually don't reference blurbs when I'm interviewing an author, but I thought this was interesting on the cover of Fast Pitch. There's a reference to fast pitch being a league of their own for the softball set. At what point did it become sort of, from a professional standpoint at least, whether the 30s, 40s, 50s, whether it was in Arizona or other parts of the country, when did that become right. sort of the, the haven for, for women who wanted to play this sport? Why did those leagues develop?
5: biggest reason is because baseball has just been historically hostile to women and women who tried to play baseball were usually kicked off the team you know there's tons of stories of women who played softball when they got older but as as kids they tried to play baseball with their brother's little league teams or at school and there's always a certain point where maybe if they were allowed to play for a little while the coach would eventually say you know no girls allowed and they were shuttled away and and back then there weren't softball teams to play for at the, at the school level, and so they would end up joining these community teams. Um, actually, Phoenix had a, a couple of really great teams, um, the most famous being the, the Phoenix Ramblers, who played starting, I think, in 1939 or so and up until the 70s.
0: Billy Harris, who uh, she is one of the more famous players and, and a woman of African-American descent. How much division was there? We often hear, of course, in Major League Baseball about Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. Was there an issue like that in women's softball?
5: Um, I think so. I think there was a lot of division, um, just in the sense that communities at that time were so segregated. A lot of times what would happen, you'd see African-American employees who maybe weren't able to join the company-sponsored teams um, having to form their own teams, and you had a lot of community teams for, for different minorities who, who weren't represented by some of the mainstream teams. And Billy Harris was an incredible pitcher, and she was one of those players who was able to cross over and you know, basically recruited for her pitching talent.
0: Do you look at, at some of the, the women who ended up becoming successful in professional softball as heroic in any way. You mentioned a reference to one famous star of softball who went on the old game show, What's My Line? And I was wondering, in reading the, that part of the book, I was thinking, was she treated with respect? Was she treated as sort of an anomaly of sorts? Like, here's this professional female athlete. Let's sort of have fun with her.
5: Yeah, I think the latter. It was still really important for for these female athletes to be able to have that exposure by going on these um, television television shows and you know, game shows, like as you mentioned, they were mostly treated as a novelty. And, um, it certainly wasn't widely accepted for women to play sports at a competitive level at that time.
0: With the research you did and the folks that you spoke with, did they look back on those years fondly? Uh, did they look back with any sort of bitterness
5: Oh, no, I think they definitely look back on those years fondly. I mean, for many, it was kind of the highlight of their lives. And a lot of them still remember the games vividly, and they could tell you play-by-play play of these games that happened in, you know, in the 1950s. So it really played a pivotal role um, for, for female athletes coming of age in the you know, 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Um, because there just wasn't much else out there. So these, you know, the women I talked to were they were willing to relocate, leave their their families behind, and um, do whatever it took to be able to to play on these softball teams.
0: You lead off chapter six with this uh, blip from the softball story, which says playing softball detracts nothing from femininity and good looks, and marriage and babies detract nothing from softball playing ability. I find it interesting that that would be something that would actually have to be, in writing, but we're talking about so many years ago, how much of that perception was there that if women decided to play a sport like this, they were somehow no longer women in the traditional sense?
5: Oh, I think it was pretty pervasive, um, especially at the time that book was written in the 1950s. There was so, you know, always this context of, can you believe these women are, are playing sports instead of just being housewives? And I think that was a very familiar treatment of, of these athletes, and that was just something you had to deal with as a female athlete at that time.
0: Well, so how has that changed? Are the athletes looked at in a more positive way now, or are there also undercurrents of, well, you know, clearly they're, they're not that feminine?
5: I think it's still complicated. I think there is still this lingering perception that, that sports, especially team sports like softball and basketball and in soccer to a degree, that those are masculine activities and that as a a woman playing those sports, there's this idea that you have to either identify with those masculine qualities or perhaps overcompensate by showing that you're more feminine. I think it's still an issue that these athletes have to wrestle with.
0: How important do you think the history of this game is to those who play it now? Because certainly when we think about the history of of men's baseball, it's so tied to what's going on now. You'll even have certain players talk about some of the legends that came before. Is there any of that when it comes to women's softball?
5: I'm not sure there's as much of it. I think in part because softball evolved in such an interesting way that you have kind of these different stages. And once it became primarily a, a women's college sport, I think now when people think of the history, especially people within the softball community today, they think of those college players, uh, and especially they think of the players who played for the US in the Olympics starting in 1996.
0: Are we seeing an uptick? Is there a possibility that a professional league would actually be something that, that could gain in popularity where it's a little bit more mainstream?
5: Um, yeah, right now the players often do a mix of going over to Japan and playing in their professional softball league part of the year and then spending the summer here in the U.S. playing in the National Pro Fast Pitch League, um, which is fairly small, but it, it is up to six teams this year. And my hope would be that it can grow at least to the size of the WNBA, which has 12 teams.
0: Tucson resident Erica Wesley is the author of the new book, Fast Pitch, the untold story of softball and the women who made the game. She'll be appearing at Changing Hands Bookstore in Phoenix on June 16th. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Record-shattering heat hit Phoenix several times over the past week or so. Even though we have to get used to it in the summer if we're going to stay here, that's not a fun part of living here in any way. But the weather phenomenon known as the monsoon can be entertaining as long as you're not stuck in it and your power stays on. Dust walls, lightning, and heavy rain can lead to striking images, which draws the interest of photographers and videographers. Brian Snyder certainly fits into that category. He's produced a documentary featuring tens of thousands of Arizona storm images. It's called Why I Chase the Arizona Monsoon. And Brian Snyder's with me now. Hi, Brian.
8: Hey, Steve, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. So I already said thousands of images. What about how many miles you logged for this documentary? You're driving all over the state, right?
8: Yeah, I'd say over the last five years, which is what this film kind of incorporates, I've driven at least over 50,000 miles. Um, It's kind of amazing when you look back and see that you've been 50,000 miles in just one state.
0: How excited do you get when you see the first Big Mond Storm of the season, big monsoon storm of the season? I mean, do you prefer to shoot in Maricopa County? Is there another part of the state you enjoy?
8: It really depends on uh, where the first storm is. Oftentimes that takes me to Southeast Arizona or even up to the high country because they uh, often get the storms first. Uh, but when it comes to seeing the first storm every year, it's like, it's probably like Christmas Day for me. It just, you, you, you get out there and it's just a very exciting feeling to start seeing storms, see this, or uh, start to smell the, uh, the the smell of rain and things like that—it's just always an exciting time of year for me.
0: I'm not sure a phrasing it this way makes sense, but based on what you say at the beginning of the documentary, it almost sounds like you—you you lucked into this in a sense. You weren't really looking to do this. How did it end up being something you wanted to capture like this?
8: Well, I moved out here uh, from Missouri to actually finish uh, the, the path of becoming an airline pilot, and unfortunately, due to medical reasons, uh, I had to take a different approach on my career. And when I moved out here, I just started seeing the, the awesome storms. I moved out here right in the summer, and I'm like, this is pretty fascinating. And I had some camera and videography background, so I started filming them, started taking pictures of it. And then next thing you know, I was chasing practically every day of the monsoon <laughs> that I could and driving thousands of miles. So it's kind of interesting how you can be on one path, and then when life throws you a curveball, you're, you're on a completely different one.
0: You know, there are some people who are adrenaline junkies, and they get really excited about that. Have you ever felt like you were one of those when it comes to to filming some of these storms?
8: I don't know if I'd call myself an adrenaline junkie. I I definitely enjoy being up close, you know, next to the the thunderstorms. Uh, There's a lot of things that, even about what I do right now, I'm still terrified of lightning. I still find myself making sure that I'm... Uh, you know, a very safe distance away. But I think for me, it's more of the passion of seeing Mother Nature being right near uh, with it and stuff that gets me excited.
0: So have you ever either accidentally or sounds like not intentionally, but accidentally ever put yourself in danger where a storm came on faster than you thought?
8: Uh, there's always situations where you probably look back and say, you know what, I, I may have sort of taken a different way. Um, uh, there's been some close, you know, l- close lightning strikes uh, that have uh, come pretty close to me uh, unintentionally. But I think that's why you have those those buffer zones and boundaries to keep yourself at a, a safe distance uh, most of the time. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I had a very close call with a storm. It's here
0: and now on KJZZ. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix talking with Brian Snyder. He's put together a new documentary called Why I Chase the Arizona Monsoon. And Brian, for people who haven't seen it, I mean, there are some of these images and the way they move across the screen and the, the different layers that encompass a monsoon. You've got the dark clouds, you've got the wall of dust, you've got the lightning. Um, does this come from, uh, I, I'm, I'm wondering how much of this has to do with, it's almost like a nature versus nurture question. How much of this is your natural ability to shoot? How much of it is nature giving you something this fantastic to shoot?
8: I think a lot of times, you know, I I like to think of it as the monsoon is a very difficult thing to chase. You uh, can have all the forecast and knowledge about weather, but many times I think you find yourself just in the right place at the right time. Uh, There's definitely some skill involved and experience definitely helps, but uh, I think there's times where you you put yourself in a position and you realize that nature is about to put on an awesome show for you. And those are the days that I think – keep my passion going because there's also many days where nature doesn't cooperate and you, you drive home, you know, maybe even several hours really frustrated about not getting what you had hoped for.
2: And how
0: quickly do you need to be ready to go? Because some of these storms can develop really quickly or some just peter out and, and lead to almost nothing.
8: Um, every day I get up and uh, some days I'm out the door within an hour after I get up. And other days I'm kind of waiting around a little bit longer to wait for maybe the bigger stuff. A lot of it, I think, is you you kind of develop a gut for stuff like this. You start seeing just storms around the valley and and you go, okay, it looks like today might be a good day or, um, you know, maybe this isn't the best storm to be on during the day. It's, you know, kind of an early storm or sometimes what we call like a troll storm where it's teasing you to come, you know, follow it, but in the end, it's not the one to be on. So, uh, it, it's it's a definitely a balance, and any storm chaser out there will tell you that there's many times where you you come home with absolutely nothing, and it can be frustrating. But it's it's the seeing the the good storms that keep you doing this.
0: Brian, even the phrase "storm chaser" for some of us, frankly, seems a little odd. I mean, it's one of those where you're you're someone who really wants to to go after this. Do you think "storm chaser" actually applies to what you do?
8: Yeah, definitely. I I, I do what most people don't do. I drive to the storm. <laughs> you know. And and it's one of those things that, you know, I wouldn't recommend anybody just hop in their car and start driving towards the storm unless you have some experience and stuff. But uh, I definitely would would consider myself down, especially, you know, the fact that I've been doing this, you know, pretty full time during the summer uh, for the last five five or so years. So uh, definitely (laughs) a a different avenue than most people.
0: Part of being involved, I think, in art, and, and certainly your photography, your videography is art has to do with almost being able to enjoy a great moment, be able to take a breath such as like seeing the rainbow in front of Sedona's red red rocks, which you have in the piece as well. Do you get a chance to actually to feel that at the moment, and what does it feel like if you do?
8: Yeah, you definitely do um, in the film, there's actually a moment where I share where I had been trying for years to uh, get a certain scene that I've been wanting for years, and when you have that moment, it's very very awesome but also there's there's been some moments where you know like last year i was down in tucson and i saw a a a microburst and actually caught it on 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 my uh, time lapse and when you get home you kind of see it all come together it's kind of a a nice pat on the back i guess you could say of you know a a job well done but for me i think that the biggest thrill is just like you said with the sedona rain i i was waiting out a, a a rainstorm getting soaked but knowing that there is a very good chance of a rainbow is why I did it, and being able to capture that was definitely rewarding.
0: Storm chaser Brian Snyder has produced a new documentary called Why I Chase the Arizona Monsoon. Brian, nice to talk with you again. Thanks. Thank you, Steve. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program, and thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations with Tony La Russa on baseball or Brian Snyder on filming the monsoon or a discussion about the Arizona Democratic Party or even one of our previous programs, please go online to KJZZ.org later this afternoon, or you can download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. This is member supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great afternoon. It's 12 o'clock.
2: KJZZ is supported by Desert Schools Federal Credit Union, a locally owned lender offering a personalized approach for commercial real estate loans to help grow your business. Learn more at desertschools.org slash business.